Welcome to What Makes Up Your Mind, updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University's School of Medicine. This is your invitation to meet the faculty dedicated to understanding our most complex organ, committed to curing mental illness, and inspired to help create a healthier, thriving world. Hello, happy to have you with us on What Makes Up Your Mind. I'm Jane McMillan. Our guest is on the front lines of research, treatment, and public education of the devastation of opioid addiction. She was one of the earliest voices raising the alarm of the prescription drug epidemic and its origins. A nationally sought-after expert on addiction and substance use, Dr. Anna Lemke is the medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford School of Medicine, chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic, as well as associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Her 2016 book on the opioid crisis was not only a cold slap of reality for the nation, but it was a pretty hard look in the mirror for the medical community and a glaring spotlight on the producers of these pain management drugs. Drug Dealer MD, how doctors were duped, patients got hooked, and why it's so hard to stop. That book also got the attention of policymakers and legislators. Now, we've seen efforts to hold the makers of opioids accountable. There's been more attention on prevention and treatments, but the crisis continues. So we're very glad to have Dr. Lemke here to share her expertise on this and advances in treatments for substance use disorders in general. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for being here. You are very welcome. It's my pleasure. So important because it's been almost three years since your first book was published, but the headlines continue, the cultural trauma of of this crisis continues, the medical trauma, of course, too. Has anything substantially changed with the situation since your book was published? Yes, there's good news to report. So nationally, opioid prescribing has decreased by approximately 25 to 35 percent. Um, And along with it, in some states, we are seeing just the beginnings of a decrease in opioid-related overdose deaths. Uh, That's mainly occurring in states where access to treatment has been combined with pulling back on opioid prescribing. Um, I highlight that because in states where we're just pulling back on opioid prescribing, we've actually seen an increase in opioid-related deaths um, pertaining to illicit opioids like heroin and illicit fentanyl. The thinking there is that as we pull back on prescribing, patients are potentially turning to illicit sources of opioids. The way to counter that is not to continue to prescribe at levels as high as we have been, but to Uh, in addition to pulling back on prescribing to provide easy, affordable access to treatment for opioid addiction. I would also add that there's greatly increased awareness nationwide, not just by prescribers and others in the medical community, but also on the part of patient consumers around the risks of opioids, even when taken for a bona fide medical condition. So I think there is a slight sea change, a slight cultural shift, both in awareness, increased awareness of risks, 
and just a better understanding of appropriate scaled back use of opioids. So I do believe we are making progress. That is good news. That is some good news. This is a, a, a big ship to turn around. That's right. And and some of the statistics are still so daunting. Last year, the New Yorker reported that an opioid-addicted baby is born every half an hour. I think six in 10 overdose deaths last year were opioid-related. So not to rain on the good news that you've given, but it's it's so massive. It's hard, I think, for many of us who are not uh, seeing these statistics all the time to really get a grip. And could we talk a minute about the multi-generational impact of this and how long it might take with all of our efforts to get back to a baseline? You raise a really important point regarding the multi-generational impact and how deep this epidemic goes. Uh, we have several generations of babies who are born physically dependent to opioids because their mothers were exposed to opioids when those babies were in utero. And we do know that babies who are born physically dependent uh, on opioids, uh, when they're followed out to six years of age, show emotional and cognitive delays compared to babies not exposed to opioids in utero. Not only that, we have lost several generations of parent caregivers to opioid addiction and overdose deaths. So we have an enormous increased burden on our foster care system, on grandparents and other caregivers uh, who have to take over those responsibilities from parents who are not able to. So, so you're absolutely right. It's, it's a, you know, the, the definition of an epidemic is a spike in a disease process over a very short period of time. And the opioid epidemic, unlike other prior and concurrent drug epidemics, really meets those criteria because of the lethality of opioids and because of the vast increase in supply of opioids in our communities through overprescribing and through diversion of these drugs, leading to sudden spikes in the number of people who are addicted to and dying from these drugs. And, and again, as you highlight, uh, the impact is multi-generational. And I foresee that we will continue to bear the burden of this opioid epidemic for probably at least the next 30 to 50 years. And I know that it sounds like an unbelievably long time, but if you think about the fact that it took at least three decades, starting the late 80s, early 1990s, for the epidemic to begin. We're now at 2020, and it was really only in about 2012 that we began to recognize nationally that we were in the midst of an epidemic, that there started to be efforts at the local, state, and national level to combat the epidemic. And it's really only in the last couple of years that we have seen a shift in prescribing and a shift in some geographic regions, and not all, uh, in terms of the numbers of people addicted and the numbers of people dying. So we have a long way to go. Multi-generational impact in generations before we see this back to a point before the crisis began. Absolutely. Not to mention the fact that although I do believe that the opioid crisis stands apart in many ways from prior, current, and future drug crises, in addition to our current opioid crisis, we do have rising rates of addiction to lots of different substances 
from alcohol to cannabis to methamphetamines. So we have concurrent drug crises that are on the rise that we're battling um, at the same time that we're trying to get this opioid problem under control. And we're going to talk about your perspective on treating addiction and ways of looking at it and addressing it. But I wanted to pick up on what you just said. Addiction to some kind of substance has been part of the human struggle forever, most likely, I'm guessing as a layperson. But you mentioned that this opioid crisis is different. Explain what you mean by that. This opioid crisis is different uh, for a number of different reasons. The first has to do with the uniqueness of opioids themselves. They are more immediately lethal uh, than many other drugs, meaning that uh, a small amount can kill, especially for individuals who are not tolerant to that opioid. Opioids are different from other addictive drugs in that they cause a physiologic syndrome of dependence that is incredibly powerful and also drives continued use as people seek out the next dose, not necessarily to experience a high, but to stave off the pain of withdrawal. Uh, So those are two reasons just inherent in the drug itself and the way that the body reacts to the drug that make opioids unique from other drugs. But there are also sociocultural and socioeconomic uh, distinctions of this, uh, this epidemic. One of them has to do with the fact that this is a, a drug epidemic in which the drug itself was advertised as medicine, as having uh, beneficial effects that are not supported by the evidence. And we do know that when an addictive substance comes in pill form and it's prescribed by a doctor, uh, you know, the average American citizen understandably assumes that that drug is somehow safer. Or uh, in general, we've also, uh, both healthcare providers and the community at large, has been educated through misrepresentations of the science to believe that they are safer or less addictive when prescribed by a doctor, uh, when in fact that is not true. The other aspect of this epidemic that really makes it stand apart from prior epidemics has to do with our distributor supply chain and the uh, enormous ability uh, that we have today to distribute opioid pills to the far corners of our nation, including small towns in rural West Virginia, meaning that access to these drugs through overprescribing beyond the evidence and through this distributor supply chain has so greatly increased access to these drugs uh, that we've all become vulnerable to addiction and other morbidity and mortality. This would be a good point to let the audience know that you are an expert witness. Drug makers are now being held accountable. Yes, so I have been retained as a medical expert witness in federal and state opioid litigation on the plaintiff side against opioid manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies. Uh, What that means is that because of my expertise on this topic, I have been asked to offer opinions regarding the origins Uh, and the progression and the impact of the opioid epidemic as well as ways we might redress the harms. Because of my consultancy role um, in the opioid epidemic, I'm not at liberty to speak about that litigation. Mm -hmm, Of course. 
Let's talk about the opioids themselves. When we go into a doctor's office, I'm having surgery. Uh, what kind of pain medication are you going to give me? Opioids are still being prescribed for certain things, and you've said there are instances in which this is appropriate. But where does it become dangerous, and what do we as consumers need to ask our doctors and pharmacists about this? The biggest mistake that was made in the last three decades regarding opioid prescribing is their use for minor and chronic pain conditions. Chronic pain refers to pain experienced every day for at least three months. Hence, chronic opioid treatment refers to the use of opioids daily for three months or more. There is no reliable evidence to support the effectiveness of opioids when used daily for longer than three months, and volumes of evidence showing significant harms when used for long duration. So for that reason, the recommendation is that opioids not be used for minor and chronic pain conditions, but they're still a useful tool. Um, For example, they're still essential uh, perioperatively uh, when people are receiving surgeries. Uh, They're absolutely essential for severe trauma when people are in, for example, serious motor vehicle accidents. And they're indispensable at the very end of life, the last two weeks of life, as people make that transition into death. And we would never want to say that there's no role for opioids. I would never say that. But we have to be much more judicious in our use. There's lots of exciting research coming out now uh, showing that, for example, even in the perioperative setting where it has been the standard in the past three decades to prescribe high volumes of opioids during surgery as well as after surgery, that what we're doing is actually putting people at risk simply by exposing them to opioids during surgery and by giving them a big bottle of pills when they go home. We're putting the individual themselves at risk and we're putting their family members at risk. Very important study came out in 2019 by Khan et al. showing that there's an increased risk of opioid overdose in family members who have been prescribed an opioid. So not even in the individual who was prescribed an opioid, really speaking to what I've called the tsunami effect, the flooding of our society of these pills, uh, both to people who have been prescribed them as well as people who haven't been prescribed them, uh, which has contributed to this public health crisis. So a lot of good work is happening now, pulling back on the number of opioids being given to people postoperatively, uh, the amount of opioids used even during surgery, uh, the use of multimodal analgesia and non-opioid interventions during and after surgery to minimize the use of opioids. And what we're finding is really interesting. We're finding that patients in the perioperative setting um, with fewer opioids are in fact having adequate pain relief. They're not calling back and saying, I need more opioids, I'm in more pain. In fact, what they're saying is, um, I don't have a lot of leftover pills sitting around now like you know, other patients or the way we used to practice before. Um, so lots of encouraging data validating that we were over-prescribing before and that by pulling back on our prescribing, we're not in fact harming patients and we're probably contributing, or I would say we are contributing to the greater good and the public health by limiting the the overall volume 
of pills out there. As a consumer, post-operative consumer of of painkillers, opioids, when should I say to my doctor, I'm managing my pain okay? I, I guess I'm getting to one of the most interesting parts of your book for me, and that was how we as a culture view pain and our expectations on eradicating it completely. Yeah, so we, we really have a, a, a cultural norm that pain of any kind is dangerous. And that, in fact, the experience of pain can leave a psychic scar, setting a, us up for future pain, for example, in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder or something called the centralizing pain syndrome, which is a pain syndrome that persists despite the absence of disease or injury that we believe is actually a pain in the brain. Um, And I think what's important to recognize is that this is a very modern concept, this concept of pain as being dangerous. 100, 150 years ago, doctors actually believed that pain was salutary, that it had health benefits, that what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that the leading surgeons in the mid-1800s were reluctant to implement general anesthesia once it was invented because they they believed that a modicum of pain during surgery would boost the immune response, would boost the cardiovascular response. There was this idea that pain had spiritual benefits, you know. So, so, and we've really gotten really far away from that uh, in our modern culture, which I believe has contributed to this opioid epidemic and to the problem of overprescribing. Prescribers have now been told that essentially their role is to eradicate all pain. And consumers, patient consumers, have come to expect that they should be pain-free. And if they're not, something is wrong with the care uh, that they're getting. And we really need to shift that dialogue. I think patients need to understand that uh, although we as healthcare providers it is our job to help patients in pain that even now we don't have very good solutions, especially for chronic pain, and that some of our solutions are, are worse than the problem itself. And I would argue that long-term opioid therapy fits in that category. So what that requires is, is educating patients to say, you know, in the short term, what may be best for you is to tolerate a significant amount of pain so that in the long term uh, you will be better off. Or uh, I could give you these opioids, which in the short term probably would help with your pain, but they may leave you physically dependent or even addicted or vulnerable to overdose death. And that's probably not worth the long-term risk. So it's really a shift in our dialogue that needs to occur. And that will require re-educating medical students, residents, and in-practice healthcare providers, and also re-educating patients about what they can and should expect around pain control. What happens in the brain when we get addicted to opioids? And of course, we'll talk about other uh, addictive substances as well. But that cycle with opioids that then can result in more pain when one tries to get off of it. Yeah, so what happens when we take opioids every day for a long period of time is that we actually change our brains. We tell our brains that, hey, I'm getting all these opioids from the outside. I don't need to make my own opioids anymore. So we downregulate our own endogenous opioid system. It's also true that opioids, in addition to working on pain receptors, 
work on the brain's reward pathway, including the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is our pleasure neurotransmitter. So when we ingest opioids on a long-term basis, we're telling our brain, hey, you know what? I'm getting all this dopamine from the outside. I don't need to make my own dopamine. I can down-regulate my dopamine. I can down-regulate my, my dopamine receptors. So that we get in this dopamine deficit state, which means we're more vulnerable to experience pain and less able to experience pleasure. We change our reward threshold. And the result of that is that long-term opioid therapy can actually cause more pain, a process called opioid-induced hyperalgesia, where patients become more sensitive to pain or their pain condition worsens as a result of being on opioids. This is something that I've seen in my clinical practice. One of the most exciting and also in some ways dispiriting um, things that I've been seeing in the last two to five years is that as I take help chronic pain patients slowly lower their opioids uh, to, a, to a safer dose or, or lower them and get off altogether, these chronic pain patients are coming in and saying, my pain is actually better hmm. than it was when I was on opioids. Not to mention my mood is better. I'm cognitively clearer. Um, I'm more present for family members, you know, which is recognition, I think, that we as a healthcare profession have actually done our patients, or at least many of them, a disservice in putting them on long-term opioids and that we um, have a, an enormous obligation to this population to care for them properly now, whether they're just dependent or whether they've progressed to the disease of addiction. But we need to provide care, compassionate and safe care, including compassionate, slow, and safe patient-centered opioid tapers. Well, and that's the next step, and that's what you're working on at the Dual Diagnosis Clinic, is how do we set up a system in which there's an alternative, not only to prescribing in the first place, but helping people get off of it? Because as you said, prescriptions can be ended, but the cycle of addiction or withdrawal pain, um, or addiction not just of opioids, but of anything, there is not a system in place. You've, you've said we need to bring it all into the house of medicine, addiction in general. What do you mean by that in the fullest sense? I mean that we need to recognize addiction as an illness, like other chronic relapsing and remitting illnesses from major depression to diabetes, and we need to build an infrastructure inside the house of medicine to treat people for the disease of addiction, uh, which means that people should be able to walk into any emergency room, primary care doctor's office, OBGYN office, say, I am struggling with X, Y, or Z uh, addictive substance. Will you help me? And the answer should be a resounding yes. We do that. We know how to do that. We have protocols for that. And insurance company will pay for it. Because, of course, if we don't have reimbursement for a clinical service, you're not going to be able to get the workforce to provide that service, and you're not going to be able to have the service. I would also add that there is a large cohort, probably on the order of tens of millions of Americans who are now physically dependent on opioids, but not necessarily addicted. And many of those patients are on dangerously high doses, suffering the adverse consequences. So I do think we need to build an additional adjunct infrastructure in primary care settings, in pain treatment settings that helps patients taper to safer doses of opioids or maybe off altogether while 
providing other treatments for their pain. So this is not just a problem of opioid addiction. This is also a problem of pain treatment and that people don't have um, adequate access to the non-opioid and non-pharmacologic interventions for pain like physical therapy, like the various forms of mind-body work, uh, like just kind of standard, reasonable non-opioid medications and how to take those properly, things like Tylenol, acetaminophen, mm-hmm. things like uh, ibuprofen, um, as well as you know a lot more uh, research and effort on finding better treatments both for pain and for addiction. This is kind of a, a twin epidemic. To that end, um, I and my colleagues have created something called the Bravo Protocol, which is a, an intervention to help patients on long-term opioid therapy taper down to safer doses. These are typically patients with chronic pain. We've created a free Stanford CME online course available for free to anybody who wants to take it, uh, including a first-person narrative account from a patient of mine who tapered off of opioids after getting to very high, various very high doses and describing her journey, um, which I think is, is really instructive. What's really uh, salient about her experience is just how darn hard it was to get off of opioids. It took her over a year to do it. And, um, and the Bravo protocol is just kind of a, a clinical guideline to help providers as well as patient consumers understand how to get off of opioids or to lower the dose safely. It's a really patient-centered approach. Um, One of the main mantras is that we have to go slowly. Uh, Patients who have been on opioids for years to decades are not going to be able to get off in a number of weeks. They're going to need a lot of time, a lot of support. Um, I was very excited that the recent HHS guidelines on opioid tapering actually adopted the flowchart from the Bravo protocol. This was a flowchart that I created in combination with colleagues from Oregon Pain Guidance Task Force. Uh, so to some extent, this Bravo protocol has been validated by expert consensus. You mentioned addiction, and you also mentioned the term medical dependence. For lay people, for those of us who are looking at our own friends, families, ourselves, how do we determine which is which? What does it mean? That's a great question, and it's not an easy answer. Um, But we've separated or made a distinction between people who are just physiologically dependent on a substance like an opioid and those who are addicted to a substance like an opioid. People who are physically dependent uh, have a change in their brain in their and their body such that they've experienced tolerance, needing more and more of that opioid to get the same effect over time or experiencing a diminished effect at a stable dose, as well as withdrawal when they cut back on a dose or miss a dose. So physical dependence now refers exclusively to this physical phenomenon. Whereas the disease of addiction is a complex biopsychosocial phenomenon that has to do with changes in our attention toward a certain substance, the amount of mental real estate occupied by thinking about that substance and compulsively engaging in and pursuing uh, that substance, sometimes referred to as drug-seeking behavior, as well as continued use of the substance despite harm to self and others, which is probably the hallmark of severe addiction. Um, Dependence, physical dependence, 
it exists in many people who become addicted, uh, but you do not need to be physically dependent in order to meet criteria for addiction. Um, so there's overlap is the point in that Venn diagram between people who are physically dependent and people who are addicted, but they can also be completely separate categories. Does that make it difficult for people to see the argument to bring it all into the house of medicine if there is not a specific physical, physiological dependence? Does that for some people become a question of willpower? And that's why it's been so difficult to get addiction in general viewed as a disease. So public survey studies asking Americans whether or not they think addiction is a disease have really shifted in the last 20 years. The majority of Americans now believes that addiction is disease, which begs the question, why aren't we doing more in the House of Medicine for a phenomenon that the majority of Americans now consider to be a disease? And that's a complicated and multi-layered question. which I don't have a complete answer to, except that I think a big part of it is residual stigma around a behavior that begins with choice but ends up in a place of non-choice. And to understand that how that happens, you really need to either experience it in yourself, see it in a loved one, or be in a position like I am where you see it clinically that people who develop the disease of addiction really do lose the voluntary choice to some extent, uh, to a large extent, uh, in order to decide whether or not they want to stop using. And that occurs because of this hijacked brain phenomenon, the ways in which neuroadaptation changes the brain over time, downregulating dopamine, leading to this dopamine deficit state. There's really amazing neuroscience that's come out in the last 50 years showing brain changes that occur as a result of chronic heavy substance use and that have really convinced me that we are dealing with a biological, physical disease. Now, like any mental health condition, it's a complex biopsychosocial disease. It's not necessarily a disease like cancer. Um, You know, you can't get a slice of tissue and view it under the microscope. But uh, frankly, even if you look at diseases like cancer, there is a contextual or environmental component, for example, Um, If you live in a toxic waste dump and you're exposed to radiation, you're more likely to get certain types of cancers. Some people will never develop cancers in that environment, and others are more vulnerable. So it's this vulnerability, stress diathesis. Another example, which I like to compare and others have compared to to addiction, is type 2 diabetes, which is a result of our modern high-sugar diet. Some people can eat loads of sugar and never develop type 2 diabetes, and others, even watching what they eat, will progress to diabetes at some point in their lives. So, you know, there are many diseases that we consider consider to be highly biological that are triggered by uh, the environment and the way that we live now. And addiction is certainly uh, in that category. So in the court of public opinion, I think it's fair to say that Americans are much more accepting than they ever were before of addiction as a disease state. Um, But we still have a long way to go in overcoming stigma, and more importantly, in creating a robust infrastructure, including reimbursement for addiction treatment. The other myth that's out there is that addiction treatment doesn't work and that people never get better, and that's absolutely not true. Um, I mean, just like there are terminal cases of of cancer, and we accept that 
really without any question. There are terminal cases of addiction. People do die, die of this really tragic disease, but there are lots and lots of people who get better. And the response rates uh, for treatment of addiction are about 50%, which is on par with our response rates for other chronic relapsing and remitting illnesses like major depressive disorder. What should one do if we don't have access to the Stanford Dual Diagnosis Clinic? We may have a general practitioner. We may have a specialist of some kind, a surgeon. What do we do if we wonder if we or someone we love is grappling with some type of either physical dependence or the disease of addiction? We know that there is an issue without this infrastructure in place right now. But what do we do? Where do we go? How do we start addressing it? in our own families or personal lives. If you yourself believe that you've become physically dependent or addicted to an opioid, I urge you to talk to your doctor, to your primary care doctor. If that individual does not have expertise in that area, they can refer you to somebody uh, who does. If they can't refer you to somebody because they don't know of anybody, I recommend you get online and, and look at the SAMHSA Treatment Locator, which is a national database which might be able to tell you uh, who in your geographic area is available to assess you uh, for the development of a substance use disorder, which is our uh, medical term for an addictive disorder. If you are worried about a loved one having become dependent on or addicted to opioids, I urge you to call that loved one's health care provider and let them know about your concerns and why, what you're observing. Um, there are privacy laws that prevent uh, that health care provider from necessarily calling you back or even acknowledging your phone call in any way without the patient's consent. But that only goes one way from provider to patient. You as the, uh, as your loved ones, um, you, you, you're not held to those privacy laws. So you can call uh, your uh, loved one's doctor or go in with your loved one and, and make your concerns known and, and use that as an avenue uh, to try to get treatment. We'll have a link on the program notes to the SAMHSA treatment locator, also to the CMA online course that you described, and of course information about your book. Dr. Anna Lemke, I wish we had twice as much time, but for now, I hope we talk again, but for now, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Addiction Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. I encourage everyone to read her book. It's fascinating. It's easy to absorb. It's a real eye-opener. Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jane McMillan. You've been listening to What Makes Up Your Mind. Updates from the frontiers of neuroscience, well-being, and mental health from the experts in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. For more information on this program and all of our transformational work, visit us at med.stanford.edu slash psychiatry. What Makes Up Your Mind, Updates from the Frontiers of Neuroscience, Well-Being, and Mental Health, is a production of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine, a copyright of the Board of Trustees of Stanford University. 